Shabbat Shalom. Beginning of Parsha Trumas, that beautiful, beautiful opening lines by Daber Dona Moshe Lemor, Daber El Bnei Israel, Vayikuli Truma, Meit Kol Ish Asher Yidvenu Libo. And I don't just love the word Yidvenu because the root of it, of course, is Nadav. Daber Bnei Israel, Vayikuli Truma, Meit Kol Ish Asher Yidvenu Libo, Tiku Et Trumati. Tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts, donations, nidavot, uh, that which um, voluntarily flows from their heart, free will offering. So you shall accept gifts from me from every person whose heart so moves them. Exactly as I show you, and some part me, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And again, this repeats uh, in the Haftarah. I will abide among the children of Israel. I'll tent among them. I'll dwell among them. And I will never forsake my people Israel. In the beginning, when it says that it has like a description, exactly as I show you the pattern of the Mishkan and the pattern of its furnishing, so shall you make it. So I mentioned earlier, Jewish mysticism had seen that there's a pattern here that shows the true connection between lower and upper worlds. So who is giving? so freely. It's the men, the women, and the children together, bringing offerings of their heart to make the temple. And the temple, this model for humanity and our connection to God. Throughout the Bible, of course, men, women, and children together assemble to worship God, to pray to God, and to meet with God. And while we have a category of ritual impurity, people can be tame, a man can be tame, a woman can be tameah, that means they're placed outside that grouping temporarily before they return, but the grouping itself is mixed of men, women, and children together throughout the Tanakh. It was until the 11th century, post-Talmudic, that we know of any separation between men and women in prayer, which would make sense since it started in Muslim countries where that practice was practiced in Islam. So how is it that this past week, The Israeli government has backed off yet again from an agreement they made to restore the temple that we are describing today, the initial building of it, to not allow for the gathering of men, women, and children together in a space so close of what we call the Kotel. A little history. There was no synagogue at the Kotel until 1948, and men prayed beside women without any mechitza. This is historically true. Jewish prayer there became popular in the 1500s. It's clear from various testimony from those who lived in Jerusalem, especially I'm going to quote from the 1800s, and in photographs and paintings, that women visited the Kotel on a regular basis. Men and women were mixed. Women frequently made up the majority of worshipers at the Kotel. And there was no permanent mechitza next to the Kotel in 1948, when the Kotel and the old city were captured by the Jordanians. As one um, person said in his eyewitness testimony, it's a memoir. I remember when I was very young that there was this guy, Simento of Mayohas, and he used to sit at the hotel with a table and a chair in front of him. And if a distinguished man or woman came, he would give them that chair to sit on. In June 1967, the hotel was under the jurisdiction of Rabbi Gorin and the IDF chaplains. And a few days after the war, bulldozers came and cleared away many houses near the Kotel to form the plaza that we see today. 
At that time, Prime Minister Levi Eshkol and Moshe Dayan wanted to give the responsibility for all religious and historical sites in that area, including the Kotel, to the National Parks Authority. After all, basically a national park, it's a national monument, hadn't been a synagogue. But Dr. Zer Varhaftig, the Minister of Religion, was adamantly opposed. And by June 26, 1967, the Kotel was placed under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Religion. At the same time, the Knesset passed the Protection of Holy Places Law, which appointed the chief rabbis of Israel to set the rules and regulations of the Kotel. In less than three weeks, they erected the first official mechitza at the Kotel. So since 1967, there was a small lower area that those Haredim designated as a synagogue. Can you do that? Can you take an outdoor space and declare it a synagogue? There are halachot about it. And the answer is, if you can take a courtyard space and you can assure that nothing else happens there except Beit Knesset type stuff, you can take a courtyard and declare it, but can, can no longer function as a courtyard did before. So they specifically, the chief rabbinate, the Haredim, designated a small area in front of the wall as a synagogue. And they specifically designated the rest of the plaza as not a synagogue. So as to ensure that that area could be used for national ceremonies, which would not be appropriate in a synagogue, and for other activities. This is their own distinction. So this actually led to the possibility, originally opposed by the Haredim, of archaeological excavations in what is now called the Davidson Archaeological Park, from which many fascinating and vital discoveries were made under the authority of the park authority. And the upper Kotel Plaza explicitly designated as a non-synagogue space by the Haredim themselves was placed under the authority of the parks before. Um, so it was based under the authority of the parks, although it has since been claimed by the Haredim under their, under their auspices. So several years ago, we, we, you know, I don't need to tell you that for many years, the women of the wall under direction of many different women, including the, very powerful person, Anat Hoffman, brought Torah scrolls um, to the women's section and to pray, Rosh Chodesh, other times, bring Talit, and to, this is also opposed by the Haredim, not just a David, they, women can have their own personal prayers, but they can't lead prayers. So, and they led prayers. So, of course, as you know, they were attacked, there have been riots, and they have been charged and convicted of um, disturbing the peace disturbing the natural order. I find it's interesting that they're disturbing the public order. And I think of what we were just told by uh, Ramban about the parsha, that there's something about the order of all of these poles, and, and there's something about the order of what's taking place in exactly that location that's supposed to mirror the divine order. But the women somehow, they, they're actually convicted technically of disrupting the order, even though it had always been very different. So a compromise came about. By the way, when I used to go, and maybe many of you probably have, Davin did Robertson's Arch in the archaeological excavation area because it's so separated from the main Kotel. I've gone to Davin with people from conservative yeshiva and from Schechter, uh, conservative institutions in Jerusalem, and often it's locked and they won't unlock it and you can't find someone to unlock the door. And so there, there's been mishigas for a long time about whether we can Davin uh, with mixed uh, gender and in our space anywhere at the Kotel. 
After decades of advocacy for equality, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appointed an advisory committee in 2013 to analyze the issue of prayer arrangements at the Western Wall. And after three years, three years of meetings, testimony from dozens of witnesses from every major Jewish movement, including several representing conservative and Masorti Judaism, the committee released a report in 2016 calling for the compromise. The cabinet quickly voted 15 to 5 to approve the plan. The plan basically goes like this. Those seeking a pluralistic prayer space at the Western Wall have to leave the main complex to go to the adjoining Robinson's Arch area. Now remember, for women of the wall who actually want to pray in a women's section at the wall, that means they're giving that entirely up because there won't be a women's section where they're allowed to go. And they will have to go around to that back area, um, Robinson's Arch. And under the compromise plan, Robinson's Arch will be expanded and connected by a pathway to the main Western Wall Plaza. So you don't have to know the secrets of how to get there and find the door locked. And there will be, uh, a, and, given, and giving the area a single entryway, um, including entryways that are divided, men, women, and mixed. The management of the men's and women's sections will continue to be run by the Orthodox rabbinate, while this egalitarian section will be overseen by a government committee representing different denominations and streams. And the money that has been used to uh, manage Robinson's Arch so far has been paid for by the Jewish Federation of Greater Metro West of New Jersey. And uh, yes, so the go- because the government wouldn't pay for that, so that would now be taken over, like the rest of the hotels paid for by government funds. So there was a 15-5 uh, vote by the cabinet to approve this compromise plan, which basically gives the Haredim full control over everything that we see, um, that we normally see at the hotel. Uh, and they can do their modesty checks, which increase every year. And, but the Robinson's Arch area will be official we will be legally granted access to it and funded in the way I stated. So there are compromises on both sides because it enshrines in a sense, Haredi control over the main part of the plaza. But why hasn't it been implemented yet? Well, despite the vote, Orthodox parties pressured Netanyahu to not initiate the plan and the government never actually began any of the processes to implement it. So it was taken to the Supreme Court. In June, 2017, Supreme Court, brought there by the reform and conservative movements, uh, petitioned the court to force Netanyahu to fulfill his government's promise. And in response, he formally announced that he was freezing implementation as long as he remained in office. After Naftali Bennett was elected prime minister in 2021, his government announced that it would implement the compromise. It was part of the reason that rabbis like me, not publicly, but by my own private uh, politics were looking favorably upon this coalition. But by the end of the year, some Orthodox members of the ruling coalition pushed against for delay and cancellation and then said that, again, it would disrupt the order because Orthodox Jews would end up attacking people in the Robinson's Arch area and therefore um, it's too dangerous. Like any compromise, the agreement was difficult for all sides. The non-Orthodox movements, women of the wall, gave up their long-sought push to be able to have prayer services in the existing Western Wall complex, which has been the focus of Jewish consciousness for thousands of years and had been a place of mixed um, men, women, and children. 
and they're get, and they will no longer be allowed, as I've said, to bring their tully tote to the women's section and et cetera. And the Haredi leaders of the Western Wall complex had to give had to agree to have egalitarian prayer in the adjoining section. Do Israeli Jews really care about this? Or is this just a thing for that I, I should be more measured about it because come on, Israel's secular anyway, and the Jews there are orthodox, so let them have it in the traditional way. Actually, they do. It's not just a desperate issue. Multiple polls have shown that the majority of Israeli Jews support the compromise agreement of the Western Wall. The majority includes not just the 7% of Israelis who associate with conservative and reformed Judaism, but the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who wish to pray at one of Judaism's holiest sites without being forced to abide by the rules of the Haredi rabbinate or segregate themselves by gender or go through the modesty checks or whatever new rules will come along. So Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said this past week that members of his own Yamina party opposed the plan to expand uh, and to, ex- to expand the egalitarian Ezrat Israel, and the members of the New Hope are against it as well. And so he will not be implementing it. In response, and not surprised, the Rabbinical Assembly and other organizations issued a public statement, which I agree with. The RA said the following, the agreement reached between the government of former Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Haredi parties of the government and the women of the wall and the pluralist extremes of Judaism calls for the formal establishment of the egalitarian prayer plaza at the Kotel. It's unconscionable that Prime Minister Bennett has shelved these plans in light of the fact that alongside a majority of ministers and members of parliament who concur with the implementation, the majority of Israelis also believe that there should be free access for all Jews to pray according to their custom at the Kotel. And it's inconceivable that the government of Israel should continue to prevent freedom of prayer and equal rights to all Jews. And I agree with that. You know, considering, as I said, historically, that the model of the Kotel actually was men, women, and children mixed. There are reports from eyewitness testimonies from the Middle Ages and the early modern period that, yeah, sometimes a group of men, of course, would form to daven, and sometimes a group of women would be davening. But they said there'd be a cluster there and a cluster there and a cluster there and a cluster there because it wasn't a synagogue. And now we have a compromise establishing an ultra-Orthodox synagogue, which does offend me. I, I, my, my trips with my wife to the wall have gotten increasingly, um, I say, uninteresting to me. I'd rather avoid it. A lot of Israelis do too, by the way. They just skip it because they don't want to go through and, and get examined for where, how long your skirts are and where you can go and where you can stand in exchange for the space in the back. And now it's going backward. I found the comment of Yuval Noah Harari, who is um, always interesting to read, kind of a historian of all of history, a big picture kind of genius thinker. And I agree with what he said about the situation. He wrote, in religion, any revolution must be cloaked in a return to original rules. Because religions have this claim for eternal truth, they cannot ever admit that they are doing something new. Their trick is almost always the same. We're not doing anything new. We're actually doing something very, very old. It's so old that people forgot it. We are just going back to the origins of the religion. But almost always, these supposedly old things are new inventions. 
Though fundamentalist religious leaders resist admitting that they have changed with the times and styled themselves as opponents of change, Harari says, if it wasn't for change and evolution, their religion would be long gone because it has been evolving for almost 2,000 years. By contrast, Harari points out, the so-called radical move of including women in Jewish ritual is a minor tweak. What Anat Hoffman is asking is just to take the Orthodox religion and broaden it a tiny bit, approach some of its unfair discriminations and biases. The one thing I disagree with in Harari is he thinks that pressure to expand and be inclusive by a little bit is a modern invention, and maybe he's right. But I actually practice what he accuses the Haridim of, so I recognize a fault I have in myself when I see it in another, and that is I do think history is important, and I do think that originally we had men and women and children davening and praying together, and that this is not pressure from the outside to change the tradition. I'm the one who says it may seem like it's forgotten, but that was to tradition. And that's important to me. So I think his point is insightful, and it's the main thesis I present to you today. How is it that when people really are changing the religion themselves, they take one issue, they make it, they dramatize it and focus on one issue, homosexuality, abortion. Suddenly, the entire religion has always been about this. And if you look and you can't find it, you're just not going back far enough. But we guarantee it. And here it is the role of women. Anat Hoffman points out, today in ultra-Orthodox society, it is women, not men, who receive a well-rounded schooling beyond religious learning. And the result is that they are educated. They are the breadwinners. And they are growing in their stature in the family. And that changes the ultra-Orthodox family. So what she's pointing out is, what is some of this modernity? I've had people tell me, you know, there's not enough Talmud being studied in this world. The idea that everyone should be studying Talmud all the time is a new idea. And exponentially, there's more Talmud being studied every day than there's ever been at any time in Jewish history. And not only that, it needs to be studied where men don't have to go to work. They can stay and just study all day in the yeshiva and be paid for it, even though the Talmud explicitly states that one must have a job and that one may not sit around and study Talmud all day because that makes you idle and leads you to poor interpretations. And so that the laws change somehow. She says, so the ultra-Orthodox family has changed. The children in the average ultra-Orthodox family, when they want to know what a mortgage is or how to write a check or how the post office works, they go to mom. Mom knows English. Mom knows math. And so the status of the men and the family is changing, and this worries the rabbis no end. The result is that Israel has been propelled into an obsession with modesty Those are the laws that are important. I remind you that when there was the tragic collapse of that scaffolding and the temporary structure for the pilgrimage that took place a year or two ago, and it was awful and tragic, when one of the chief rabbis of Israel was asked what he thought the reason was, he says, you can't divine a reason for a tragedy like that. But if he had to hazard a guess, it would be the immodesty that Jewish women show in Israel in in their presentation and their dress. So the obsession with modesty, you think you're so smart, you don't get to talk on the radio. You think you're so clever, you sit in the back of the bus. These examples, Hoffman writes, of segregation, silencing, and discriminating against women over the last 20 years becoming very, very prevalent in Israel. And I would ask, if we capitulate and say, you know, it doesn't matter. We love Israel anyway, and we want to support it. What does it mean if someone's non-binary or someone's transgender? Could they be prevented from praying at all approaching the Kotel? 
Where does that go? What's the future that this leads to? She says, Hoffman, I think we come from a tradition of, of a live core of arguing. If you look at the Bible, there's such wonderful arguments there, particularly with God. And you look at the first Jew, Avraham, he argues with God like a used car salesman. Everyone argues with everyone. We were arguing religion for thousands of years until we came to the state of Israel and religious affairs was given over to one minority, one zealous group in Judaism, and the arguments ended. We're no longer competing in the free market of religion in Israel. And there's just one national religion, orthodoxy. And there's one product on the shelf of religion, she writes, orthodox Judaism. And many Israelis reject it. And to excel and stand out, Orthodox rabbis have to show that they're more of a zealot than the next. One person says, my rabbi's so religious, he doesn't meet with a woman. The next says, my rabbi's so religious, doesn't even speak to any woman who isn't his sister or his daughter or his wife. They're becoming more and more extreme because they're not in the free market. The ultra-Orthodox monopoly is actually dead in something wonderful and alive and creative in Judaism. I think as we are letting the hearts flow and everyone is contributing and creating a space in which men and women and children are together, and we sit here and we read about the creation of the temple, in the same week we're told that that can't possibly be the pattern for the connection of the lower world and the supernal world. That inclusion is a threat. I say it's the original pattern, and I think it needs to be restored. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.